vengeance. I am the knight. I am. Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how you doing tonight? Hey, I'm doing okay. I'm doing much better than I was doing last week, and let me say why. Last week on my end, total shit show. As I am getting into the show, I get uh, a message from a friend of mine that's like, hey, duh, you left your debit card down at the brewery. And I'm like, fuck, I left my debit card down at the brewery. So I'm trying to figure out how to handle that. I keep calling the brewery. They never answer. Turned out their phone is like disconnected or some shit, you know, or they don't get incoming calls, you know, the kind of stuff that you'd want a phone for. So I'm totally distracted. I I miss a good half of the episode just in dealing, trying to figure out how I'm going to get that fucking taken care of. And I didn't have one of my core issues with sort of Asriel out on the table. Matt, as I always make you do the heavy lifting for this show, uh, sort of Asriel, what's the letterer's name? It's Hassan Asmani Allahu. Yes, yes. See, he has to do all the hard stuff and pronounce the names. He is a fucking try-hard asshole. And there are so many instances in that book where it's just like he can't fucking settle on what emphasis should be. It changes on the page. And we have bold lettering and different colored lettering and shades of different colored lettering and pictograms. And I just want to shake him and just say, I'm not reading books for your lettering. You fucking... Ugh, intrusive son of a bitch. Calm the fuck down. I admit, I was actually surprised you didn't comment on Haas's lettering. As you have mentioned, I don't think we've ever had anything on the show that he's lettered, but I know we've comment- you've commented on it on the column. Yeah, there are two instances of lettering that fucking drive me insane and that make me want to punch people. It's uh, unreadable script. And whatever the fuck he thinks he's doing. I, I don't want to read a comic and think about the lettering. I just want it to be nice and professional and help me read the fucking book. I don't need balloons that look like jizz. I don't need letters that take up half the page. I just need him to do less. For God fucking sake, you ass. I've been holding on to that all week. All week. Well, I'm glad you were able to get it out. I know. I feel like I just like, I had a nice BM and I can just like enjoy the rest of my day. There's catharsis. Ah, there is. If you don't have a question, that might be our shortest intro ever. (laughs) Yeah. You just needed to get that out. I just needed to get that out because that was a really important part of that book for me. And I, I just wish he would stop. Well, in that case, uh, we'll we'll get into the comics tonight. We'll get into them early. Uh, would you say that I need to chill out, perhaps, Matt? Yeah, because uh, <laughs> uh, this th- this week we're finishing the Batman Early Years trilogy with the middle chapter, Batman Year Two, and two other stories that deal with Batman and Joe Chill. 
we'll start off with the reason for the season, Batman Year Two, from Detective Comics Volume One, numbers 575 to 578. The writer is Mike W. Barr, with pencils by Alan Davis and Todd McFarlane, inks by Paul Neary, Alfredo Alcala, and McFarlane, colors by Adrian Roy, letters by Richard Starkings, Augustin Moss, John Costanza, and Todd Klein, and edited by Denny O'Neill. The cover dates are June to September of 1987. As Batman becomes a more accepted part of Gotham City, Gotham's previous vigilante, the homicidal Reaper, returns, cutting a bloody swath through the city's guilty and innocent alike. Beaten for possibly the first time, Batman takes up the gun that killed his parents and joins forces with the mob to stop their mutual foe and is partnered with the man who killed his parents, Joe Chill, to stop the Reaper. So, I had, as in many instances, I had not read this story before, but I have heard a lot of people talk about it, and you have mentioned it several times, as being weird. And boy, howdy, is it ever. This story is bonkers. I gotta think that DC Editorial, maybe in hindsight, wishes that it hadn't had that year two label, because that just kind of blows the whole brand. This book has been quietly phased out of canon. Yeah, I would think so. It is very rarely mentioned, and when it is, it is usually somewhat retconned. I mean, the the Reaper, the Caspians, only show up in two other stories. The full circle one-shot from Davis... Uh, Barn Davis, which is collected in the trade, and a Detective Comics annual by Pete Tomasi, where he brings back a different version of the Reaper. Yeah, nobody wants to bring this up because it has a lot of Batman using a gun. Like, yeah, it's bad. Um, before we get any farther, didn't we just read something else that was Batman teaming up with the mob to go after a common foe? Not, I mean, we've read that before. Grant Morrison's Gothic does that. Mr. Whisper. I'm trying to think if there's something more recent than that, because that was quite some time ago. Feels like it was for the print column, but maybe I'm just losing my mind. Because I got to that beat and I was like, okay, this at least feels familiar. We've definitely seen that. I'm trying to think if there is somewhere more recent. This story and Gothic are the two that immediately jump to mind. I mean, we've seen Batman team up with Rachel Ghoul to fight the League of Assassins. We saw that one not too long ago. We've seen Batman work with Penguin a few times. But I, I can't think of anything more recent than Gothic, where that was the tentpole of the book. Look, that could have just been the, you know, the Hassan brain aneurysm working. So who knows? There's so much in this book that is weird and off, but credit where credit is due, this thing goes 300 miles an hour down the road. It takes what it is, it embraces it, and it goes. And from a craft standpoint, it's well done. Uh, yeah if if we're gonna have a story of batman just just saying well fuck it let's just start uh with a gun and let's start trying to kill some people well, i'm talking about art 
I'm talking about most of the way the story is laid out. The problem is that it doesn't read like a Batman story. If you remove Batman and put in generic or some other vigilante character who does not necessarily have the aversion to guns, it would be a well done story. It's just it doesn't work as a Batman story. The decision for him to go to the gun should almost be the last Batman story, you know, as it was for Beyond, right? That's the moment where he realizes I can no longer physically do this. I was almost about to do something horrible. It's time to hang it up. In this story, he gets his ass kicked once and he's like, all right, let's let's go to the gun. Do remember, this is Mike W. Barr, the man who wrote the story where Batman uses a guy as a human shield. Barr's take on Batman tends to be a little killier and a little bit never exactly what you'd think from any other writer. This actually works pretty well in line with Faith. That Batman, the other Barr story with the the street gang of Batman. That is clearly the same Batman. Yeah. It does not line up perfectly with year one. Uh, no. And it never entirely answers the question to me. And this is the thing about it that does bug me. Because I love the art. I like a lot of the set pieces that Barr delivers for the art. Nowhere does it tell me why Batman thought teaming up with the mob was the right move to make here? And why, on multiple occasions, he seems to pull his punch on the Reaper? At the beginning of part two, when the Reaper is trying to take out the mobster flying in from Metropolis, Bruce seems to have a chance to take him out and instead chooses not to and continues with this plan. We've got several chunks of this story that seem very abbreviated. Like, instead of four issues, this probably should have been six. Because not only do you have these odd beats with the Reaper, but you've also got this whole story with Rachel, where he is falling in love with her and proposing to her. And then, you know, she decides to go run back to the convent at the end. Which, again, as I've discussed on here multiple times is one of my least favorite Batman tropes where Bruce meets his soulmate and falls in love with her over the course of an issue and a half. Yeah. And it happens a lot and it always bugs me. And here she very much feels like a plot device. Yeah. At least she didn't get her brain scrambled. True. Or get harmed physically in any way whatsoever. There was no moment where she was in peril, where she was threatened. But she was there to be the the thing that stood between, not between Batman and the Reaper or Bruce Wayne and Judson Caspian, but the thing that linked them in their civilian identities. The Reaper turning out to be the father of the woman he was in love with is not a bad story beat. But when neither of them learn the other's identity until the final climactic battle, it doesn't work as well. 
it would have been better if one or the other suspected the identity of his opposite. And then it became this sort of cat and mouse thing with Rachel sort of caught in the middle. Maybe there's a way that you could do that. And then also have that final beat where the Reaper says, you know, Batman, I wasn't so sure that you could be a replacement. And then I saw you were about to shoot that guy. Yeah, you'll be all right. Ah! And Bruce had the gun to his head, but it's not like he had cocked the hammer back. The Reaper sort of just jumped in and shot Joe Chill, keeping him from having the opportunity to do it himself. Well, I mean, Reaper just had the bloodlust. It's a curious story. I've read thought pieces about what, what in this story does and doesn't work. And pointing out that this as year two and coming so close after crisis could have been a story that if it had been embraced as much as year one could have created a seismic shift in who Batman was, but it wasn't and it didn't. And so it is now a weird historical curiosity and it does leave just so many weird questions. So in the end, Batman gets back in the good graces of the GCPD because the the one mobster who the Reaper didn't kill and just mortally wounded said, oh yeah, Batman must have sold us out when it was really the Reaper who wanted to bring the GCPD in. And Gordon was just like, oh yeah, that's gotta be it. Oh, I had a half a thought in my brain and then it escaped. You fucker. Hmm. Oh, I was just thinking about like how the story would be adapted for movies. Well, had it, had it gotten some traction? Well, funnily enough, now granted, I, I think you pointed it out a few episodes ago that you have minimal to no recollection of mask of the phantasm i was about to say the reaper does have some similarities with the phantasm and the fact that there again there's the father and the daughter and the daughter who's in love with bruce wayne only here it turns out it's the daughter who's the killer and not the father it took elements of year one and elements of year two and mashed them up and took the stuff from year two and made it you know make sense and be better so there's clear inspiration in mask of the phantasm from this book and if you are going to do something with the gun maybe the one good batman idea kevin smith has ever had melt that sucker down put it in the bat suit that was a cool story and there's also just other things here that's like okay so leslie Tompkins seems to be living in wayne manor while she looks for an apartment very strange that was sort of out of left field and didn't explain why leslie was suddenly living in the manor if there'd been some hint of that in year one i'd be like oh okay but no leslie doesn't appear at all in year one this one it's a head scratcher in in a lot of places Barr is writing Leslie the way he writes Leslie, where she's you know very against Batman and is constantly reminding him that he could do something better. I like the Reaper design. A little overthought. Like, I think his um, hand scythes, his blades, 
probably shouldn't also have guns. Okay. That's not the look of the character. I like the look of the character. Yes. I think Alan Davis drew a really came up with a really cool design that is both the typical traditional Grim Reaper, but adds some combatness to it with the body armor, the leather armor. But yeah, the guns somehow in the hand size, it's a hat on a hat. It is a hat on a hat. Or a gun on a sword. But that just gets us to the point of, oh, this guy is using like weird guns. I guess I better use guns too. In one of these stories of like Batman meeting his match, I always want more about like, how is this guy Batman's match? Judson is just a random dude. We don't know anything about him other than the fact that he lost his wife. And he's got to be, what, 20 years older than Bruce? Yeah. It's not like we haven't seen sort of the inverse of that with Batman fighting the mutant leader and there Batman being the old man who has to beat the younger man. But he's Batman. I would have liked to know that Judson has been in Europe all these years and has been working out and training and keeping himself sharp in case he was ever needed again. Did we even get a clear idea as to why the Reaper stopped? No, other than the crime figures went down, so he felt his job was done. Which, let's be fair, if you know anything about serial killer pathology, which, let's be completely honest, the Reaper is a serial killer, they don't stop. They escalate it's rare to see a serial killer just be like yeah i think i'm good not good and why all of a sudden did he decide i mean i guess he came back because of rachel and they're at the beginning with the news report they the reporter who's interviewing gordon or the talk show host says that crime went back up after the reaper left So, yeah, there is no clear indication of what it was that made him be like, okay, my my job here is done. It's time to head home to my home planet. Also, also, first time he sees Chill, he says it's the face that I saw for the first time 25 years ago. And later in the story, he says 20. So I blame Barr for that not being consistent and Denny O'Neill for not catching that in two different issues. 20 years makes sense. 25 would have made Bruce in his mid-30s this early in his career. I think he might have been playing with Miller's, oh, he came back to Gotham at the age of 25. Speaking of a young Batman, I learned a thing, I think today. I did not know that Cillian Murphy auditioned for Batman. There's actually a video of a screen test. Hmm. Both as Bruce Wayne and as Batman. I'll have to track that down. That's how did I mean, how was he physically? And I think it was attached to a quote of his physically. It's it's a bit off. He's spindly kind of guy. But you could you could kind of squint and see how it might work. I said I like the art and I do. Could you get two artists who are more different than Alan Davis and Todd McFarlane? I'm not sure. There's some strange moments in terms of getting the styles to work together. 
And this is some of McFarlane's earliest work. And I mean, there's proto spawn in here with the way Batman's cape works and the way the oh, absolutely cape works. There's one panel early on, though, where Leslie has once again been scolding Bruce. And then she tells Alfred, Alfred, can you call Miss Caspian and tell her I won't be able to make lunch? I'm going to be looking for an apartment. And Bruce, oh, I'll tell her. And the look on Bruce's face, it's like, oh, God, is Bruce the serial killer? Because he just looks like this, like, wide-eyed, like, hee-hee-hee. Yeah, that, that was a bit weird. <laughs> McFarlane revels in the gore. There is some seriously gory panels in this. The Reaper skewering people, the blood splashing. Very McFarlane. Even though he's not quite the artist he will be come Spider-Man and Spawn, he's already well on the way, more so than some of his earlier stuff like Infinity Inc. This is much more the McFarlane you expect. I think we've said it, and I know anyone who is a competent and confident gun owner says it, you don't point a gun at a person unless you're planning to shoot to kill. Yeah. And once again, we have Batman who's you know, shooting to wound. Somehow he shoots a gun out of Jim Gordon's hand without wounding Gordon. And when Joe Chill shoots a guy that Bruce is trying to talk down, shoots him dead, what does Joe Chill get? Don't do that again. This Batman seems to be waiting for just the right moment for him to kill Joe Chill. Oh, yeah. This is not so much justice as it is murder. It's a weird, messy story. It's one I have a sentimental attachment to because it was early back issues that I dug out of dollar bins back in the day. But more than some of the other sentimental favorites, like, yeah, I can see all the warts. And there are a, there are a lot of warts. Big old pile of warts. And chill here is just this giddily unrepentant hitman and he's somehow thinks he's smart enough to be able to take out batman and the reaper is is this guy really think he's all that i mean these are you know to quote the parlance of gcpd these are freaks and joe chill is a guy with a gun if we'd gotten those six issues we definitely needed more of rachel and we needed more of chill we needed to get to know this guy as anything other than a walking stereotype tough guy. Yeah, he should be a meaningful character in Batman's story, especially in the adult Batman story. If Chill is brought to justice the year that it happens, yeah, so what? But if the murders are never solved, and especially if Batman comes into contact with him as an adult, like there should be some meaning and some feeling to it and i think both of our other stories tonight do a better job with that yes because here it's just he's the punisher he's very much the punisher and where this story could have been about batman struggling with a punisher type vigilante in this case the reaper and wrestling with if i have i looked long enough into the abyss that the only way to fight this is to become it. 
that's the whole thrust of the story. We don't get that here at all. He just seems to pick up the gun because he got smacked down and then throws it away almost as arbitrarily. Yeah, there's no recognition of I was about to do something terrible. I should never get that close again. And he doesn't seem to struggle with any of these decisions. There's a couple of lines in his narration about it, but it's very tell don't show in those moments because nowhere in the, in his actions, do we see him think that it's a bad idea? And then suddenly at the end, when he talks to Rachel, I'm going to give it all, give everything up for you. I just need to do this one last thing. And one last thing. And then the Reaper comes and takes it away from him. A Batman who's that far gone should be angry at the Reaper for taking Joe Chill away from him. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even seem to be that. It's just like, oh, you're not dead. I was after you. So now I'm after you again. There are two different Mike Bars. There's this one who can balance the thoughtful with the action. Things like Fear for Sale my beginning of my probable end doomsday book, even some of son of the demon, some of the Batman Talia stuff there here, all of the emotion is very performative because we don't get any grounding in why Bruce cares about Rachel. It's just like, Oh, she's perfect and pretty and pure. And I love her. If they had bonded over both of them losing a parent, that would have been some reason to connect them. If we saw him helping her in her charitable pursuits, that would have given us something. She seems to have picked up on him being deeper than he is, but we never see him act that way in front of her. Every time we see them interact up until the very end, he's being pure, vapid Bruce Wayne. We needed to see something that made it makes sense why they were both interested. And Alfred should have been a stronger voice of reason in this story. Yeah, Alfred barely exists in this story. I can't think of Barr writing much Alfred at all. And that is partially, I think, a pre-crisis thing. Granted, this is post-crisis, but it's sort of right there at the beginning. So many of those pre-crisis stories, without the... Alfred was there from the beginning. You can have Alfred be less of a key figure. The minute you get Miller, Alfred has to be front and center, especially this early, especially pre-Grace. I I think that's all I've got. Oh, that means it's time for Batman Year 2 on the big board. Okay, we are getting real close. We're at 291 stories on the big board. Oh boy, that means three episodes left. Three counting tonight. Yeah. Oh boy. Uh, So number one is still that post-crisis origin of Batman. It's Batman Year One. At number 50 is Sword of Azrael, despite any issues one might have with the lettering. Oh boy, coming at a sexy 69, it's Batman Adventures number 15, Badge of Honor. At number 100 is 
Nightmares, the Batman The Long Halloween special. At 150 is the Batman Audio Adventure special. 200 is Joker's Comedy of Errors. That's yeah, Joker's Boner. That's the boners. At 250 is the Harley and Ivy miniseries. And 291, it's our new bottom of the list is Curse of the White Knight. Long may it rain. I knew you could do it, Sean. I knew you could do it. Only Sean could write a book so bad as to be worse than Batman Curse of the White Knight. Truly magnificent accomplishment. But we're not there. We're not down there. Uh, I mean, we're, no. we're nowhere near year one either. Year three is at 123. Which is another book where Batman is in a weird place. I mean, that's him reeling from the death of Jason Todd. But at least there is more emotional resonance there. Not as good looking, though. I don't think this cracks the top 200. All right. So if if that's your ceiling, if 200 is your ceiling, do you have a basement? I'd say probably Grim Knight at 236. Right. This is not getting into problematic territory. Right. This doesn't really work as a story, but there's not there's not anything in it that really makes you feel gross after you read it. No, it is not better than Death in the Family at 214, which is also bonkers, but it hits its emotional beats better than this hits its emotional beats. Yes, I would agree with that. And then Death in the Family would be higher if not for um, diplomatic immunity. Yeah, I can I can take the Joker maybe selling a nuclear missile in the Middle East. <laughs> but yeah, diplomatic immunity is a very strange beat. Bringing in the real Ayatollah Khomeini is an odd choice. Yeah, speaking of, you know, not that we've, but we're, we're going to get there soon enough with the re-ranking. I feel like we so much of this Morrison... I wish a lot of this Morrison were up way higher. And I wonder if with the proper context, you might agree. Not necessarily Resurrection of Rachel Ghoul, but Club of Heroes and Three Ghosts of Batman. I'm going to commit to this. This is probably a bad idea. But before our big episode 100 extravaganza, I am going to reread all of those stories for you. Okay, I will say actually... I would probably put this above 220, above Resurrection of Rachel Ghoul, because that's kind of a slog in places. And this, for anything you might say, this moves. Moves strangely, but it does move. You're never sitting there like, oh my God, when is this thing going to end? It's weird and insane, but it does its thing. So that puts us between 214 and 220. That's a a fairly limited span. Okay, I'm thinking it's either 219 or 220. Um, You know what? More substantive, certainly, than Commissioner Gordon walks a beat at 219. Yeah, because I I think the first appearance of Catwoman at 218, I mean, it's much slighter, but it's fun and it makes sense from each point. So I think year two is 219. Our next story is The Origin of Batman. This is Batman Volume 1, number 47. The writer is Bill Finger, with pencils by Bob Kane, inks by Charles Paris. No 
Colorist is credited. Letters by Ira Schnapp. No editor is credited. And the cover date is July of 1948. An underworld business that moves wanted criminals out of state leads Batman to the man in charge of it, the man who killed his parents, Joe Chill. So first, we've commented on this before when it comes to some of the other stories that we've covered. But the fact that this is not more easily available to find online the first full fleshed out telling of Batman's origin that is more than just a page is mind boggling. Yeah, I I think it's just like a general rule. You should have the first hundred issues of Batman available. Right, just as like an opening bid, we're going to have a complete collection of the first hundred issues of Batman digitized online, ready to go. And most of them are there. But after, say, I don't know, uh, issue 40, you start getting some weird gaps in there, like this one. And we've talked about it before, but my first like, trade. My second trade, because my first trade was Death in the Family. But the first trade that I read to pieces was this Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told trade that was released for the 50th anniversary. This story was in there. Anything that was in the 50th anniversary Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told trade should be available online. Do you think they make that Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told trade available? No. Why would they? But beyond that particular frustration, this is the first, as I said, full retelling of Batman's origin. Because we've gotten before this, the origin told in a page in an early issue of Detective and a page in Batman number one. And this goes in and fleshes it out. It gives us the identity of the killer. It does make one particularly strange change that I still to this day am not sure why suddenly in this version, Martha Wayne dies of a heart attack after Thomas is shot as opposed to being shot. wonder if that's a code thing. Couldn't shoot women. I thought that myself, but this is pre-code. Mm, or at maybe least just I, a random DC editorial thing. That's what I was thinking. I actually put in my notes, I wonder if this was the code. And then I went and I looked at a good picture of the cover and I did not see a CCA seal on it. But I also couldn't find a really good scan of the cover because again... This book is not readily available online to get a good look at the cover. Well, in the format that we eventually had to read this thing in, when we did not have to sink to the depths of pirating this week, thank God. Batman 198, available only on DC Infinite, not on Comixology. Apparently 198 is just a reprint of a bunch of stories, which is weird to me. Welcome to the 50s and 60s where, okay, well, we're out of inventory stories. Let's just do a double-sized reprint because you've got to remember 
this is a point where back issues weren't a thing. Comic shops weren't a thing. So if you wanted to introduce new readers, because this was the time where the philosophy was your readership turns over every five years, then what you had to do was do a book of reprints. So that was why you'll see these sporadically throughout the 50s and 60s and the 40s, because this was the late 40s. And yet now I just dug and I got a really good look at the cover. And no, there is no code seal on this book. Hmm. It might be a response to Wortham. This might be at a point where the, the hearings are going on. So DC is trying to, even without the code bearing down on them, the code didn't kick in until the early 50s. So they're, they're still a little ahead of, the, of that. Still really just so weird. I can't figure why. Yeah, 54. The code was formed in 54. So we're actually six years out from the code at this point. But okay, that that's a lot of historical context that we we actually haven't talked about the comic yet and the necklace is there as the the key from the beginning but it's not no frank miller that the pearls become the the thing the the falling pearls no falling pearls in this story just the necklace we don't even know if it's pearls you have a very specific vision of what joe chill should be we've talked about it before and I was curious how this story lined up with what you think of Chill. And I, I'd be curious, as you say, because I have a, a devil's advocate argument, but I want you to to start with that. Uh, let's see. Is is my position that Chill should just be kind of a fuck up? Is that it? You said that he should be a nobody who's basically does this thing and then lives in fear of being discovered. Hmm. I don't know about the the fear of being discovered, but uh, yeah, yeah, I I think Chill works better for me as uh, and then not to skip ahead to the the next story, which is whew, nice. But I think Chill was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He is just your quote unquote dime store hood, and he makes a very fateful decision that changes Gotham forever. Men and women and other people in history don't have to be important in and of themselves to shape history. We can have just peons, nobodies, that change the course of history. And so I I think that's that's a more interesting. Joe Chill is a stand-in for Gotham crime, for being just the cruelty of randomness doesn't have to be part of a conspiracy doesn't have to be somebody who's going to eventually become a a crime kingpin he is just a bad dude in a bad alley and two important people just happen to come through that alley there this is still early enough in the history of batman where, yeah, Thomas and Martha Wayne are, you know, rich folk, but they're not the first family of Gotham. That is something that develops as the mythology develops. Here, 
you know, random rich person being murdered in the street could still be a catalyst. But for this story, Chill has become something more because Batman and Robin run across by pure accident a van that has a blowout and winds up crashing and they go to check on the driver and instead a criminal pops out of a hidden compartment in the back and starts shooting at them and it turns out that there's this ring that's getting criminals out of gotham and the guy behind it is chill and so batman sees the photo of joe chill recognizes him and is basically like Commissioner, I'm going to take this case off your hands. Robin, go home. And sets out on a crusade to catch Joe Chill and bring him to justice. I thought that was an interesting recognition by, uh, uh, is this Finger? Yes. That this story is a bit more serious. So, Robin, get out of here. We're going to do do adult stuff in this story. No short pants allowed. No, this is uh, big boy pants time. I like this story. Because it has kind of an edge to it. It has a dedicated Batman. It doesn't have a whole lot of, you know, lunacy. I mean, look, I can take my Batman a little, uh, you know, a little less seriously. But it's nice to see a story from this era with this kind of focus and this kind of groundedness, for lack of a better word. Even if we are talking about uh, mobsters hiding in uh, secret compartments and... You know, all that kind of stuff. And it has a body count. You're, oh, you're that s- it does. You're still not at the point where the code is in, in effect because that occurred to me after I had you know thought that it might have been Martha Wayne. It's like, oh, wait, no, because they're killing folk in this story. Chill kills one guy. And, and that is the one bit of silliness. The mobster who runs the riverboat, whose name is Monte Julep. I do declare Monte Julep. And here's a question, our old legal expert. Yes, so, and then I'll give you my recipe for a mint julep. So this riverboat casino is operating far enough offshore that it's outside of the GCPD's jurisdiction. Batman gets on the boat, basically adjusts its course, and then distracts everybody so it winds up coasting into the realm of the gcpd batman at this point as a at least somewhat recognized law enforcement figure is that entrapment is that legal to be like okay i'm gonna take this thing that i know is something illegal that is outside my jurisdiction point it into my jurisdiction and then it falls as it may so what we really need to get abigail on because she's never going to know more about the law than she does today because she just finished taking the bar Sounds like a question for her, but I would immediately agree that this doesn't seem like something you can do. You can't take the ship that is out of your jurisdiction and then bring it into your jurisdiction and then say, oh, surprise. Yeah, that that feels feels bad. It can't be, oh, here, you've got your recreational pot here in New Jersey. Why don't you just close your eyes and, and rest? And we'll finish the drive from Cherry Hill up to Princeton. And then instead you drive across the bridge into Philadelphia and Pennsylvania where pot is still illegal and the cops are waiting. 
I don't gotcha. think that works. Yeah, exactly. No. That seems like the definition of entrapment. Recipe for mint julep. Okay, so you take the best, freshest mint that you can find. Good, simple syrup. Crush the mint and the syrup together. And then put them to the side and just drink the bourbon. If I weren't a teetotaler, I would probably take you up on that recommendation. That It's, it's not a bad drink. Uh, I have tried on a few occasions Kentucky Derby parties to make them just drink the bourbon. So Bruce entraps Monty and then lets Monty run to chill. And then when chill sees that Batman follows him, chill shoots him. And it's like when Batman busted, it's like, Oh, this criminal was threatening me. He was coming right for me. See? And then finally Bruce is like, okay, got to do it. And he goes in and he's, let me tell you about this, the, the Wayne killing and the son. He knows it was you. What jury would believe me after all these years? Oh, and then he unmasks. Yeah, I'm going to hunt you for the rest of your life. I'm going to wait and I'm going to just follow you until you slip up. And then I'm going to rain hell down upon you. And you know, as soon as Batman unmasks, Joe Chill going to die. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We've established that before. This might be one of the earliest examples of, oh, you saw Batman without the cowl? Oh, yeah, you're dead. Sorry. But how he dies is great. Because he just runs out to his guys. Guys, you got to get me out of here. This guy whose father I killed, he's, he's after me. And he's Batman. And he said, you know, doing that is what made him Batman. And they're all like, wait, you're responsible for Batman? And then they just shoot him full of lead. They, why you audited him to death. And then they're like, oh crap, he never said who Batman was. Quick, Joe! And then Batman comes and knocks them all unconscious. And then Chill dies in Batman's arms. And the final panel is him writing case closed on the Wayne murder file. I am okay with this joe chill i'm i'm okay with him becoming some sort of mid-level because he's not a kingpin he's running you know a pretty basic racket here it's when you get into the lou mox and stuff where it becomes chill as a hired killer or the thing morrison seemed to be playing with in joe chill in hell if that were actually chill that he's now this sort of capo no, he can be, you know, a guy who's made a little niche for himself. But I agree, I don't want him to be the next Roman. Yeah, the Jack Napier story doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Oh, I'm going to add I'm going to add something here. Oh. Because it was something we a couple of days ago recorded our bonus episode for this month about Batman 89. And early in that episode, I commented that, oh, I watched this on Blu-ray and there's this really great special feature and we'll talk about it later. And I completely forgot by the end of the episode. And so I'm going to talk about that special feature here just for a moment. And if you want to hear the whole episode, go on over to patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will and sign up and you can hear that and a whole bunch of other episodes. Let me just say here... I strongly disagree with you giving this out to the fucking freeloaders. But this little 
factoid might get them to want to go and hear some more you know of our discussions of batman media mm-hmm. on the blu-ray there is a storyboard segment that would have taken place during the parade or during the celebration and it would have featured the joker fleeing batman batman chasing him and the joker interrupting a performance by the flying graysons and it would have given the basic origin of robin where the joker causes the parents death and this and that what is especially cool other than seeing the storyboards is the dialogue that would have gone along with it. Batman's dialogue is read by Kevin Conroy and Joker's is read by Mark Hamill. Nice. Yeah. I was listening to it. Was that Kevin Conroy? And I guess the end of the credits, I'm like, yes, there's a little bit of Kevin Conroy I'd never heard before. There's still a little bit out there. That is a lot to put onto one man. Uh, Jack Napier creating, in essence, both Batman and Robin. Yeah. Oh, God. We still haven't read that. What, All-Star? No, no. The post-Flashpoint New 52 Jason Todd origin, where the Joker has manipulated his entire life. It's real bad. Mm, no. I don't like that. Yeah, we're going to we're going to get to that episode someday where we do the zero issues for Nightwing, Red Hood, and Teen Titans, which is the New 52 Tim Drake origin. And the real question will be which of these 3 is the worst? I have my personal feelings, but we'll see. Cuz I feel like the Tim Drake one is the worst because it fundamentally screws the character. And you love you some Tim Drake. I do. But that's another episode entirely, and we're we're wandering afield. I think this is one of the better Golden Age stories we've read. I absolutely agree. Uh, it's got some meat to it. I don't know if you can hear that, but Beth seems to agree. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty much what I'm getting. I have to press the snooze button, which is scratch her behind the ears. Well, while Matt's is uh, paying attention to Bess, I believe it's time for Batman number 47 on the big board. Our earliest Golden Age story is up at 76. That's the first appearance of the Joker. I don't think this is quite there. No. Does it crack the top 100, though? Well, we've got Superman 76 at 141. I think that's the next Golden Age story, if you can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just scanning down. I think you're, I'm pretty sure you're correct. Yeah, I am not seeing anything else Golden Age between here and Superman 76 at 141. Yeah, this falls in between those two. Yes, and I think it's closer to Batman number one than it is to Superman 76, because that is a lot of zany silliness. Yes. 120, The Untold Legend of the Batman, retells this in a couple of pages, and while it's certainly good-looking, and that book does a lot more, it never holds the emotional weight of this story. Very true. 113 fear for sale 
it has some zaniness, but it also is, oh, Batman's greatest fear is Jason Todd dying. That has some oomph to it. That has some weight to it. I think we're somewhere in that that one hundred low one hundreds to the early one teens area. I was about to say put it between sixty six meets Wonder Woman seventy seven and Trinity. I think that's a good spot for it. That puts it right in the mid mid one teens. That puts it at the new one sixteen. I am I'm good with that. All right, look at that. Uh, does this story have a title? The Origin of Batman. Oh, uh, I'm going to put chill out. Okay. Origin of Batman. That's some lazy ass writing right there. Again, this was 1948 and there hadn't been a story called The Origin of Batman yet. Now we've had 6,000 The Origin of Batman. Just wait until that plucky Tom King gets his crack at it. Our final story of the night is Fear Itself. This is Batman Adventures, Volume 2, Number 17. The writer is Ty Templeton, with pencils by Rick Burchett, inks by Terry Beattie, colors by Heroic Age, letters by Pat Brosseau, and edited by Joan Hilty and Harvey Richards. The cover date is October of 2004. Joe Chill is haunted by the crime he committed, the murder of the Waynes. Not from guilt, but from fear of getting caught even 20-plus years later. When the detective assigned to the case makes a flashy arrest, he mentions a bit of evidence that leads Chill on a collision course with the son of his victims and a fateful confrontation with the Dark Knight. So, two little bits of of business. First, this one, I admit, I called an audible and added this one into the episode late. I had a different third story planned for this episode, but this one as a completely different take on Joe Chill felt more organic to this episode. Second, this is the final Batman Adventures comic until Danny and Burnett started Adventures Continue. This ends the second volume of Batman Adventures, which was the fourth animated series ongoing and was still being published in 04 a number of years after batman the animated series wrapped so but this, this one i'm uh, sorry to interrupt but this mm-hmm. one gets i presume canceled at 17 so they were apparently losing steam yeah and this volume leaves a ton of dangling plot threads the last two or three issues were possibly inventory stories because Dan Slott wrote the first 12 to 14 issues was introducing animated universe Black Mask, some sort of animated universe Red Hood who wasn't Joker, had Penguin as the mayor of Gotham, and none of that gets wrapped up. It's all just sort of left when Slott is off and the last three to five issues are back to being one-offs versus a continuing narrative. Justice League Adventures would continue because Justice League was still running and ran until 06. But this is the last pure animated series Batman comic until Adventures continue. Which is a good 15 years? Yeah, 
I have little doubt that despite Dini and Burnett saying that that this third season is the end of their Batman adventures continue, we will see this universe again in the not too distant future. I'm shocked that it was that long in between those volumes. But I mean, you had Justice League. I, you might have even had some Batman Beyond stuff going on in there. It's not like the DC animated universe was gone, but just specifically the solo Batman series. But this is such a seminal Batman work and universe now. I don't think we're ever going to be that far from a Batman Adventures continuation in comics, especially since you can't do it in animation anymore. Yeah, alas. It would be interesting to see if it's more or less likely if the new Batman series really takes off. And that new Batman series not entirely being you know, in-house anymore. This animated series universe, obviously the comics for this lasted longer and had more of a life than any of the other versions did. The Batman Strikes, which was the book that tied into the Batman, the animated series, the Batman, not the movie, the Batman, that ran for 50 issues. So that had a nice, healthy life but the i mean the brave and the bold one probably ran for two or three years then there was beware the batman which ran for six issues which might have actually run longer than the cartoon ran yikes one season 24 episodes i think and they burned off the back half at 3 a.m there's a lot of weird choices with that cartoon Someday we'll have to watch an episode or two of it, but you get an entire season where you don't get any of the classic bat rogues. Raish shows up towards the end, and Harvey Dent is Harvey Dent, but no Joker, no Catwoman, no Penguin, no Riddler. Professor Pig is there. Oh, oh, that puts butts in seats. It was their choice to try to do a version of Batman without those major rogues. And Alfred is out in the field with him, and his sidekick is Katana of the Outsiders, not any Robins or Batgirls. Listen, listen, Jamie, look, we're going to have three, four, maybe five years to do this show, right? This is, this is a good job. Nothing, to, Nothing for us to worry about. We can tell those Joker stories later. We'll get to them. Don't worry. But this first season, yeah, we're going to do some Professor Pig. The villains, just looking back at it, your villains for that season, you know, Professor Pig, Magpie, Anarchy, Doodlebug, Tobias Whale, Humpty Dumpty, Croc shows up. I'd forgotten about Croc. Harvey becomes Two-Faced by the end of the season, but it's the very end of the season. You get some Deathstroke, who, you know, was an old military acquaintance of Alfred. Uh, and the League of Assassins. It does have one of the monkeys. It has Silver Monkey as a member yeah. of the League. Lady Shiva. That was fun. But yeah, it, it's a weird cartoon. And we will have to, to look at it someday. Especially because I'm just looking at the Wikipedia for it. Because I've, I've seen these episodes maybe all once. But Rachel Ghoul. Voiced by Lance Reddick. Okay. But we're not talking about Beware the Batman no. tonight. We're talking about this particular issue of Batman Adventures, which is real friggin' good. It is real good. 
I don't like this random detective who I assume this is one and only appearance. Yeah, he's named in honor of one of the legendary Golden Age writers, Joe Giella. But yeah, he's just here for this story. He's here because he can't be Gordon and he can't be Bullock. We need to have somebody who could have investigated the Wayne murders and who makes this random appearance on television. Like he is who he has to be to move the story. And yeah, that's a little bit of a contrivance. But Joe Chill here, top notch. Love it. The fact that he's been in jail for 11 years. And so that's part of why he was never caught for the Wayne thing. I mean, granted, he killed the Wayne's longer than 11 years before, but he's been in Star City in jail for all these years, which has kept him out of Gotham. And now he's back and he's old and he's seeing Bruce Wayne everywhere he turns. He's waiting for the other shoe to drop because now we are existing in a world where the Waynes were Gotham's first family, where Bruce is not just some society wastrel who you wouldn't know one rich society putts from another. He is Gotham's first son. And this guy is, he's losing his mind. He's beginning to slip. He's beginning to hallucinate Bruce. And I like that here we see Chill isn't his actual last name and that it's the nickname because he's supposed to have ice water in his veins. The Iceman. The Iceman. I love that the issue opens with the nightmare of the alley. And you're, of course, immediately assuming, oh, this is Bruce having this nightmare. And then it's like, no, no, it's Joe Chill. That was a good kind of opening device. Smart. Throughout the issue, he starts to, you know, he sees that Detective Giella has a button he picked up in the alley. And if Chill were being rational that button could be from anything or anyone and even if it was from him he could have dropped that in that alley at any time the fact that the button is in the alley on that night he could have walked through that alley three days before and the button could have fallen off but the fact they'd already established that he has developed this obsession with the possibility of being caught after all these years means that okay I can accept that he is like, okay, I need to kill this guy and get that bit of evidence back. Yeah, he's he's not thinking logically. And I love that we have these moments interspersed with him still trying to be this tough guy. It's the lion and winter story that I like so much and dealing with his failures. And like he he even says, like, yeah, you didn't have the guts to shoot a kid. And that is exceptionally dark for animated adventures. Good for them. And the fact that he's now like, I could shoot him. I can't get at him now. It's not that it would be wrong to kill him now. It's that, oh, I can't get at him. Yeah, nothing that Chill does here feels out of place or weird or nonsensical. No, and when he finally tries to break into Giella's apartment, he gets caught by Batman, not because Batman is looking for him, but because the thing that got Giella attention was Giella basically by accident took out Killer Croc 
Croc has escaped jail and Bruce is basically waiting for Croc to come after Jella so he can take him out. And instead, Chill breaks into Jella's apartment and it leads to a confrontation between Batman and Joe Chill. And it ends very differently than any of these other stories because as opposed to every other version of the mythology, Bruce doesn't recognize it. I sat back and I had to think about how I felt about that. And in the end, if for me, Batman is about a Bruce Wayne who is not about revenge, who is about justice and ensuring that what happened to him doesn't happen to anybody ever again. 25 years later, he's just some guy because, I mean, Chilla's age 25 years too. That he's not out there looking for Joe Chill every night. He's in this particular situation to protect a good man. He's not here to recapture and punish Croc or to capture this guy. He's here because this guy's a good man, a good cop, and a giant lizard man is going to come and try to eat him. So I need to protect him. And he's focused not on stopping Joe Chill, but he's stopping all of the other Joe Chills, the would-be Joe Chills, which is distinctly different than the Batman we see in Batman 89. And I'm just going to say that and recommend our bonus episode uh, for extended thoughts on that. And the, the first time we see Batman and Batman 89. Batman accidentally being unmasked is a little bit of a contrivance, but it fits with what we've seen from this Joe Chill and seeing Batman everywhere. Of course, if he sees the, the face of Bruce Wayne, he's not going to believe that it's real. And I really like not just Batman not recognizing Chill, but Chill dying in this issue and then Batman possibly not knowing that, oh, that was the guy who did it. And now he's dead. That was a a smart little touch. For Batman at this point, this version of Batman, the man who killed his parents is someone who is removed from his reality. He's not looking for that killer. He's not expecting to find that killer. And so it doesn't matter anymore. It is a really different take than we are used to in any interpretation of Batman and Joe Chill. And Templeton, who wrote this, has done a ton of Batman work. He's the artist on the third season of Adventures Continue. He's done some of the other Adventures Continue. He did a bunch of 66 He's worked on some of the other Batman Adventures volumes. He's got a lot of Batman in his quiver, both as writer and artist. And this is one of his better stories. And Rick Burchett, who does the art on this, we saw him do some of Officer Down. He's done a lot of work with Greg Rucka over the years. These are two Batman veterans working on this story. A little Easter egg I really enjoyed. I don't know if it's an Easter egg, but in one of the newspaper stories about the Waynes, Perry White gets a byline. I would say that's an Easter egg. And as I said, Giella is one of the Golden Age writers. And 
the apartment building that Giella lives in is the Novik Arms after Irv Novik, another legendary Batman creator and artist here. But you know what? Those are both in there, and neither of them are clubbing you over the head with, look at how clever we are naming these things after Batman creators of the past. Aha! Uh, how do you like Bruce being seven when it happens? I mean, it's a year earlier than usual. I don't know what the difference between seven and eight is, but it's a weird little inconsistency. But there are versions of the story where he's 10. There's a version of this is where he's 12. They've settled on eight, but it's such a weird moving target. I just have to kind of shrug my shoulders. I don't think you can go much younger than seven or eight. He has to be somewhat cognizant. At that point, you're really forming memories and things. And granted, if it was three and he saw it happen, I'd wager you'd still remember watching your parents get shot. Yeah, kind of traumatic. But, you know, a little bit younger, maybe he doesn't remember the face. True. This is a good animated series book. Absolutely. I think that that I think that does it. Oh, that means it's time for Batman Adventures number 17, Fear Itself on the big board. Are we above the origin of Batman? Yes. Okay. Uh, Let's start moving up. Tree of Knowledge, the one with Night... Well, he was Robin. Then Robin and Batgirl and their professor is up at 106. I think this is better than that. Yes. That was a fun story, but this has more Batman. It's more integral to Batman. I think at 99 is Super Friends, where animated series Batman meets animated series Superman. Think this is better. Yeah. 97 is that Batman Robin Adventures annual, uh, the Mask of the Phantasm sequel. I think we can keep walking it up. Yeah. Then we don't get another adventures thing for quite some time. Up at 62. That's going straight at left after midnight. Batman Adventures Annual 1. The various villains try to go straight. And then we've got a Holiday Special at 35. It's not above Holiday Special. I might be able to be talked into above going straight. There is no emotional arc for Batman here. No. And while that makes for a more interesting story, it's not as impactful as it could be. There are some episodes of the animated series that work like this. And there's some of my favorites where Batman is sort of the crux upon which the story rotates, but it's about someone else. POV, which is a, a Bullock Montoya and another officer story. Joker's favor, the man who killed the Batman. There's a place for these stories where it's not so much about Batman, but how Batman affects the world around him. Because that's what Adventures Annual 1 is. Because there it's stories about ventriloquists trying to go straight, Scarecrow trying to go straight, Harley trying to go straight, and what comes of that. Uh, Refresh me on Badge of Honor. I feel like we just did that one. Oh, that's Jim Gordon trying to rescue the cop who is undercover in Rupert Thorne's organization. 
that's probably better but not that much better i don't think yeah so that puts it in between yeah because we said better than the superman one at 99 that's 69 nice so okay in 72 loyalties that's that year one era jim gordon has to go back to chicago because guys are after babs because she witnessed something years before probably put this below that below that is bloodstorm i still keep going because i think joker first appearance of joker at 76 is still better how about just below that put this above 24 7 yeah i'm good with that new 77 new 77 and that that's it for tonight Next week, next week, we're going to take a break. Uh, I'm on vacation, need a vacation. So you'll we'll have to survive for one week without our dulcet tones. Oh, no. But don't worry, because in two weeks, we're back. And it's another Thrace Told Tales episode with three more versions or possibly even more versions of the very first Batman story, The Case of the Chemical Syndicate. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names, Jen Kaman, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, you did great on the bar, baby. Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Two Bucks, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sraggioli, David Wheel, and Alexander Wheel for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three Cs, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And fuck Elon Musk for screwing up the script. It's not Twitter anymore. It's X. X. You can follow me at X at, at Will Devon until I fucking leave that garbage platform. But until then, I'm out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. Stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.